Well, hello there. Welcome to Talking with Tigglesworth. My name is RJL Tigglesworth, and I'm at your service. If you want to contact us, info at freedomwithintherapy.com, Twitter at vet underscore therapist, and Facebook at Freedom Within LLC. Mike and I are so glad you joined us today for this episode of Talking with Tigglesworth. You have a good day now, yo. to Talking With Tigglesworth, Season 2, and we are doing some interviews today. My name is Colonel R.J.L. Tigglesworth, at your services, and I am so happy that you joined me today, and as always, we will start this episode by introducing the host and introducing the guest. I'm going to introduce Mike and Patricia. Take it away, Mike. Well, thank you, Colonel. I appreciate that, and uh Thank you for being here, Patricia. I really appreciate you uh, joining us, and uh, we have a good show for you today. So Patricia is a licensed clinical social worker. She's also a current captain in the Army, and she works at the National Guard base in Oklahoma. And uh, today's podcast, we're going to learn about um, what she does for veterans, how, what she's noticing, what's going on with veterans and mental health. And as we're both clinicians and we're going to talk about whatever else comes up on the, on the, uh, the docket today. So as we always start off every podcast, I want to start off talking about self-care and for me, self-care this week, we've been doing a few different things. So I went out on the boat and it was so, so cold that I caught nothing but shivers. That's it. Just shivers. And uh, no fish, even though on the, on the fish finder, we had about 100,000 fish behind my boat. I couldn't catch anything with shrimp. I couldn't catch anything with worms. Couldn't catch anything with plastics. Oh, it was just horrible. And it was cold. It was like 32 degrees outside. But that's Louisiana for you. Next week, it's going to be 75 probably. So we'll be good to go there. Um, also, I've been getting this baseball team together. So the North Shore Braves, if you follow us on Facebook, it's at North Shore Braves and uh, 10U. Travel team baseball. Coach Mike is back, and and the colonel said he said, "Well, Coach Mike, you need to get these boys together, and you need to get them on that baseline and run them and teach them how to do all the things you do in baseball, just like I used to do when I was a young pup." And I said, "Colonel, you are sure correct." And we got these boys out there, and they're running, they're throwing, they're hitting, they're ready to go. And uh, if you want to support us, go to the Facebook page at North Shore Braves and uh, support us, and uh, send us some pictures or look at our pictures. You want to send us some money so we can go somewhere with the boys? Feel free to do that as well. So I want to ask you, Patricia, and I want to ask everyone else out there in the, uh, in the world, what have you been doing for self-care? That's a really good question, Mike, and Colonel Tigglesworth, because it is challenging to do self-care in the environment we have today. And I don't know about anybody else, but... We're extremely busy here, and it is so easy to not do your self-care, to let something else impede with it. So with my particular group of people that I deal with mostly for what I do, is I do a lot of behavioral health and mental health with military and veterans and their families, I have to find something quick and easy. And 
Most of us are impatient. So I have to find something that we can actually do realistically, right? So what I do is I start with breathing, something small, something simple, something easy. And you wouldn't think of it normally as a self-care activity, but if you are prone to anxiety and you have a tendency to, as Brene Brown would say in her books, you have a tendency to create realities that don't exist yet. It's difficult to stop and do a self-care activity like fishing. And next time, maybe you should try bacon. You'd be surprised. Shrimp won't work. Bacon might. So trying to find something to do in the middle of that's difficult. And we deal a lot with um, instant go crisis management, um, anxiety high in the moment. So we, we do breathing. And I literally do one minute. I kid you not. It's simply one minute every morning of a breathing technique. And then I have several apps that I work with. The one I work in the morning with myself is Calm. And they have a, a breathing portion where it times you and you can watch the little circle. I uh, do not focus well, particularly in the morning before coffee. So trying to get me to do something self-care-ish to start my day with so my day goes better is challenging for myself and anybody around me. So the breathing helps. And I can literally set the timer as long as I want. If I want to do a minute, just do a minute. If I want to set it up to 10 minutes, I can. And it allows you to do that. And you can follow it. It has um, bell indicators too. So for those that are more hearing oriented or they're, they're, they don't have the vision, maybe they're blind, you can hear it. For those that are deaf, you can see it. And it gives great indicators for when to exhale, when to inhale, when to, to hold. So basically, you're going to breathe in for a count of four. You're going to hold for a count of two. And then you're going to exhale for a count of four. It's a total of 10 seconds per cycle. And that I can handle. And I do that a lot with my veterans that are coming to me that have been trying to manage PTSD or PTS, chronic stress for a long time. And they've gotten to a point where they can't manage it. But that time between getting to me to discuss the issue and getting to actual care, there's a, a, a delay in time there. It takes time to get care these days, particularly in America. So what can you do between then, between those two points? You know, you can breathe. You've got to do it right. So, and I teach my, my soldiers when we're in the field, special breathing techniques that no one even has to know you're doing because where I'm at, my troops have to be able to do math and a lot of it at a, at a, very quickly. And they have to be correct in their math to not be correct is to have innocent deaths. And we can't have that. So yeah, what do you do in the middle of all that for self-care when it's all going at you, the chaos is everywhere. There's noise everywhere. You're, you know, there's yelling and all kinds of stuff going on. What do you do? You can breathe and no one has to know you're even doing it, but it'll reset the anxiety center of your brain and help you start thinking. It brings you back down and then you can add your other self-care activities. So we have a lot of sports here. We do a lot of sports and athletics and painting is a big thing glasswork. I personally garden. Um, I listen to music, a huge music fan, watch movies, 
look at things that make us that make me laugh. I love memes and I have a dark sense of humor. So I think most vets do. Most military do have a, a, a dark sense of humor. And uh, that, that's that's kind of what comes into my sessions a lot is uh, people start off with with some humor before they go into their experiences. Um, so with that, what, tell us about, um, tell us about your experiences. Tell us about your military background. Tell us about what got you into being a clinician. Um, sort of like me, you know, uh, you're a social worker. I'm a a marriage family therapist, uh, working primarily my patient load primarily is, uh, either military vets or military families. Um, what got you into that? What's your background in all that? Ironically, I started out as a junior high and high school teacher. So I was a licensed teacher for the state of Oklahoma. While I was teaching, before I actually got my license in college, I had considered transferring over majors from education to psychology or sociology. Behaviors always fascinated me. I've always wanted to know why a set of identical twins given the same environment with the same different stimuli made two different decisions in life. Why did one take this direction? Why did one go the other direction? What what motivated that when they have the same stimulus, they have the same environment, they have the same genetics? Now, instead of listening to that, I thought, well, I love people. I like to give back. So I decided to be a teacher. While I was teaching, uh, one of... Well, a student teaching, actually, one of my freshman students was brutally abused and murdered by two fellow students. So the state of Oklahoma sent in mental health assistance to try to debrief uh, the school because it was pretty tragic. And this was in the late 1990s. So this is pre-internet. This is pre-cell phone, all of this stuff. So. You have to think of the context of time. So they sent in services. Well, the two psychologists that showed up weren't real friendly to say. They basically told the teachers, and I had a strong background in child psychology from the University of Oklahoma at for my education. I was the one of the new programs where they really infused child psychology. So they basically told the teachers to sit back. We didn't know what we were doing. Let them do their jobs. Well, we had mentioned to them that in my class that the student was in, there was only one vacant seat. It was hers. You don't sit in the vacant seat of the person <laughs> that the class is now missing. Any psychologist would know that, you would think. However, these particular clinicians did not listen to the feedback provided, gave pushback, and proceeded to do exactly what you shouldn't do. This is Oklahoma. Us in Louisiana are very much alike in our concepts of thinking and responses. So when they did that, the entire school shut down and would not even respond to these clinicians. So it wasn't an hour later Word had gotten around at break. They would, none of the, none of the students would even participate. So the clinicians had decided since we can't be of assistance, we're just going to leave. So they left and it left the teachers to do all of the psychology work and the grief work that was required for the student. Cause not only did we have to deal with one of ours having been brutally abused and murdered, it was a big news story. 
But we also had the two students that did it that were on the rampage and threatening to come shoot up the school. So we were having to deal with all of that. And so the teachers were having to do this. And we're Southern. Don't think we didn't have every weapon in every car in the parking lot. <laughs> the students had brought them in. I had to go student to student and go, you've got to take this back out to your car. You can't have it in a school. We, we can't do this. I understand your need for security, but we have got to do this the right way. And fortunately, the two students that were accused of the crime did not um, come to shoot up the school like they were threatening. However, we still had to provide the grief support. That started my thinking of maybe I want to go into counseling. I didn't do a darn thing with it. So <laughs> in my teaching, and um, there came a point where um, our school actually had to start reducing their teacher teaching staff based on uh, a reduction in students. And I was low man on the totem pole. So they, they offered me a part-time contract, but in the state of Oklahoma, you can't live on that alone. Yeah. So I changed professions at that point. There was no other teaching jobs available, which was great. Sucks for me, but it was great for everybody in the state of Oklahoma. So all of the students stayed in Oklahoma that year instead of going to Texas and Louisiana. So and we didn't have any availability. So I ended up becoming a working for law enforcement at the state level. Yeah, I know, right? Ironic. So in law enforcement, I started seeing needs because at that point, the Murrow building bombing had happened. So where I went in state law enforcement, I was seeing um, PTSD from the Murrow bombing because our guys had to go in and they were finding um, the you know what they needed to find of the children, of the adults, um, all this good stuff. And they were the ones having to catalog the findings. That takes a toll. And, there, and self-care was not a thing. So there was no telling somebody about self-care at the time. So I noticed that too and made in, in inquiries about it, you know, talking to friends and stuff, going, are you getting help and things like that. So there's another indicator I should have been in this field and yet ignored it again. So I ended up wanting a part-time job. I worked at state law enforcement. State of Oklahoma is not the best paid. It's not the worst, but it's not the best. And I wanted a part-time job. And I had some friends that were in the National Guard, both Air and Army. And I did my research and who paid better than the National Guard? It's part-time, one week in a month, two weeks a year, amenities, the potential for retirement. I mean, it, it just, it was a gold mine. And I'm like, sold. So while I am DAR, I'm daughter of the American, uh, uh, of that particular group, because my family goes all the way back for military. That is, I was not joining because of family legacy, nor to be patriotic. So most everybody, most everybody joins for that. I wanted a part-time job and they offered me a bonus. It was great. <laughs> so you're right. It's the best of both worlds. So I joined the National Guard and no sooner had I been in and came through basic. I was offered the opportunity to become full-time guard, AGR, Active Guard Reserve. Army and Air Guard's best kept secret. So I took them up, yeah, I know, right? I took them up on their opportunity and I was hired. So there's something to be said about an education level. So I was hired and I came in enlisted. I was qualified to be an officer walking in. I didn't want to be an officer walking in. I wanted to learn the ropes so that as an officer, making decisions, I would have that information to make the best informed decision. 
Absolutely. The best, the best officers, in my opinion, are former NCOs. Preach it. Sure enough. At least. Yeah. And you know how things go, you know, the pain of, of when, when an order comes down and it's, there's a, there's a better way to do this, that kind of thing. So you don't necessarily have to suffer, but if you haven't come up the ranks like that, you, you don't know what you don't know. So while I was, while I was enlisted, of course I deployed to Afghanistan 0304 as a supply sergeant and one of the few females supply sergeants. And we were the first big group of females in country. So and we had everybody with us. We had the Green Howards. We had um, Canadians. Uh, we ha- it was full, full group, full of world. It was great. It was it was quite the honor to actually be able to serve with comrades from different countries. So it's not something I've been able to do before. So and they let me tell you, I don't know what other people might say, but our other con- our comrades had our backs, which was great, and vice versa. So with that, I was enlisted and in about 2012, as a supply sergeant, I was presented with an opportunity to take, to apply for a military program. It was a military social work program. It's, and I say military because it's not just army, army, air force, Navy, DOD civilian, they all train together and we're all in the same program. Um, I didn't say Marine for those of my, my Marine compadres that are listening because the Navy takes care of that for you. We heard so that. that's why Navy is crayons anyway. Well, I like my Marines. They brought me Dr. Pepper when I couldn't get it in the field. So, I have funny Marine so, friends. No, the joke, Marines. I, I, I love, yeah, my Marine guys are awesome. So, so at that point, I applied for the program. We had over 100 applicants that year. They chose the top five. I made it. Congratulations. So thank you. It, it was, it, I cannot take all of the credit. For those that believe in God, it was holy God. So I am not the high-speed officer or in, enlisted soldier people would expect. I'm okay. I mean, I manage. I'm compliant. But I, I'm not the guy going for the gold. I'm like, this is great. I will help my troops. I love the work. I love the camaraderie. Um, but I'm gonna em- I'm gonna empower people to become the best. I'm I'm not your front line. I'm gonna empower you to be the front line. I'm your I'm your sniper. Your support system. I, I had a commander that once. I had a commander that once said. Uh, a commander once told us. He said, um, "The minimum is the minimum for the reason. And if the minimum wasn't good enough, it wouldn't be the minimum." Preach it. I like that guy. Yes. <laughs> True statement. But some of it, some people are designed for support. Some people are, are designed for the front. So, and I'm designed for support. Now that doesn't keep me from going to the front. I'll go to the front any day and I'll support my front guys from the front if I need to, but I also know how to support from the rear. So I can go in between. So I became a clinician at that point, <clears throat> excuse me. And <clears throat> excuse me. And I, worked at the VA for two years. I was under supervision for my clinical licensure. Yes. Now, if you listen to, if you listen to any, uh, any of my podcasts in the Colonel, the Colonel will tell you, the Colonel gets upset when he talks about the VA because, uh, the, the VA and, and, and the Colonel, they, they, they go round and round sometimes with some of this stuff. Uh, what are some of the things in the VA? Well, we'll pause here for a second as we talk about this and then we'll move on. What are some of the things in the VA that you noticed that were were not 
going like you needed them to go and maybe they got fixed because we want to be fair to the VA. They have a lot of problems. And I talk about this in my podcast. They got a lot of problems and, and I try to point them out to the directors at the VA, but I also want to give them credit too. So what are some of the things that you saw back then? Uh, what year were we talking about when you was doing this? Um, I went in for supervision in 2014. 2014. Okay. So we're 2021 now. Um, so 2014, what things were you seeing then that maybe you've noticed has been fixed already? And what are some of the problems that you still see that was back then that maybe they're still dealing with today? The first thing is I take a lot of soldiers and veterans to the VA personally or by phone. I'll walk them in by phone if I need to. And a lot of people are hesitant to get into the VA system. So what I do first is say it is a bureaucracy. Let's take a moment and think about that. And they're like, okay. So I say, keeping in mind, it's a bureaucracy. And then I let them um, go with that. So I'm trying to think how to best put this. What I saw at the VA, and I'm only speaking from personal experience. This is not professional. I saw a lot of good and I saw some things for improvement. <laughs> so we don't show this. A lot of the good I saw is that A, there is veteran care. Period. There's veteran care. You can get it. So let's stick to the basics. You have an opportunity for care that you wouldn't otherwise have. So the improvement needed though is that it may be the system for care. So it, it comes down to the people. So in that bureaucracy, in that full system, you have mods that you go to and some people swear by their mods. They get great care, no issues. And then others can't stand their mods. They don't get the, they're not, they don't feel heard, things like that. The VA has tried to rectify some of the negative feedback by building their social work department. What does that look like? Social work and patient advocacy. So what you can do is if you don't, if you are having trouble with the VA or you don't like what's going on or you don't feel heard by your clinicians or your providers, then you can actually go to patient advocacy or you can act, go to a social worker. You can have a social worker assigned to you. Transitional services usually works with that. So once you have that, that social worker's on the inside. That's what I did. I did. I was in a, a inpatient program, but I'm on the inside. I know the system I have. I know what it looks like. I can do the re, you know, referral requests. I can do consults, you know, all that stuff while I was there. So, but most of the, most of the people that have the, the issues with the VA had unrealistic expectations. They weren't realistic in their expectation of care from the VA and how it should go. That doesn't mean the VA doesn't need to improve in that. Because their timing, oh my goodness, the, my favorite meme was there was a, a gentleman dressed up in a 1776 uniform in a waiting room and another veteran took the picture and said, welcome to wait times at the VA. So absolutely, they need to work on their scheduling for sure because they do have a tendency to double schedule their providers and that's a no-go. At the same token, on the patient side, you still have to be able to have that realistic expectation of care. So 
expecting to go in, sit with a provider, verbally vomit 8,000 things that are wrong with you and expect the magic pill in 24 hours is not realistic. And we do get some of that. And here's the issue on that is a lot of my veterans have chronic problems. Chronic means it's gone on a long period of time. If you go a long time with pain, then you're going to be cranky and you're going to want help now. You're going to lose sleep. You're not going to eat right. You're definitely not moving. So your oxygen level in your body is not where it needs to be for adequate thinking, for adequate attitude and behavior, things like that. So you've had all this going on. You've had to deal with the bureaucracy of the VA. You finally got an appointment. I can actually side with the the veteran in that case on, geez, it takes too long. Once they're in though, they expect that instant fix. And I can't blame them because of the chronic pain issues and the chronic problems. But you have to give it to the clinician too. Clinician just got it. So the expectation of instant fix me is unrealistic. And I get that a lot in my line of work. Because I do a lot of crisis management and I my forte is to put a dual diagnosis, particularly with personality disorder and um, addiction. So I get a lot of, hey, bam, I want you to fix it now. And I'm like, how long have you had this problem? Oh, 15 years. Oh, and you want it fixed now. If I had a if I had a magic pill, I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> so I think your question involves a combination combination of bureaucracy issues versus unrealistic expectations and how that intertwines into the care that that veteran is getting or not getting. And if they're not getting it, oh, geez, give me a phone call. I'm telling you, I'm one of the biggest advocates in the world. (laughs) So, So there are times where soldiers do fall through the cracks in veterans. And the VA is working to fix that. Like I said, one of the ways is the social work program. So Oklahoma City, I can speak for Oklahoma City since I've been there. They have They've grown their social work program exponentially since before I was even there. When I started, we were able to have social work meetings, the entire hospital, social work meetings in a boardroom. By the time I left, we had to be in an auditorium. So what that that means is every soldier has a better probability of having that care person on their team, that social worker that knows the system that can go, oh, What's, and ask the right questions. Sometimes a veteran doesn't know how to ask the question. They don't know how to communicate what the problem is. That's our job is to learn what questions to ask to figure out what the real issue is. Maybe it's not the care team. Maybe they're having problems at home. It's just coming through on the VA side because it's a safe place to vent. Absolutely. I see that a lot in my practice as well, where it's, it's um, there's so many outside influences to their problems Uh, with the VA in particular. I think the people of the VA, and I I said this before in a different podcast, the people of the VA, the clinicians and the doctors and the nurses and, and the, and the staff, I think they, they mean well. Um, I think there is some support staff that, that, that from my experience as a new Orleans VA, um, and, and when I used to, when I used to go up to the American Lake VA up in Washington state, I think there's some support staff that, um, could use some retraining. Um, and, and my biggest Great. complaint, my biggest complaint that I've been complaining about with people, um, recently and, and, and I, and I keep complaining about it here in new Orleans cause it keeps happening is the breakdown of, um, I guess privacy. And, and when I'm, when I say that, I mean, 
when when they ask us to fax documents to them um and we 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 stack the documents with a with a break in between each patient um i've been told on numerous occasions the reason my my notes don't get in veterans files and the reason they keep requesting it is because the the admin person who accepts these looks at the first name on the first note and sends all the documents to that person's file and so we may have 15 different patients and those documents are in one file. And, and I've seen that personally. I went to an ENT appointment and the doctor came in and read enough, all these good things that's been done to me and all these treatments I've had and all these uh, surgeries that I've been a part of. And I was like, that's not me. <laughs> he said, is this your name? Is this your social? I said, absolutely. But that's, I never had, a, I never been told I had, I had this or I had that. I never had a surgery. I never had a, a, a sinuplasty or anything like that. Um, although that's what I need, I think, because I have a deviated septum, but I never had it. And so um, that, I think that's the issue. And, and when we raise the issue, when we talk about, um, we call the advocates and we say, this is what's going on. And then the nursing staff, they acknowledge the problem and they say that they're working to fix it. Uh, some problems like that, I believe, is 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 not just we need to work to fix it. That's a that's a let's stop everything right now type problem because the doctor, the physicians, the therapists, the, the psychiatrists, whoever, they make decisions on your treatment based off of what your history is. And if they are just reading this history and not reading the name at the top all the time because it's in there. Because you don't, from a clinician standpoint, you don't you don't expect other stuff to be in a file. You expect it to yeah, be you're one. You're still tipping to be abided by, and that's law. Exactly. So there's a there's a violation of law at this point. And so at that point, when when the complaints are made numerously, and I and I've and I've I've said the. Uh, Fernando Rivera, he's the, he's the director of the VA here in, in New Orleans. I've mentioned his name a few different times. And there's people that I know that listen to this podcast that know him personally. And I know they told him about it, but um, I haven't gotten a response from him yet. So Fernando, if you listen to this, I mean, you can email me at info at freedom within therapy.com. And we can talk about this because I think that he wants to, I think he wants to try the best. He, he's a good guy. I hear really good things about him. I just think well, that. Mike, have, have you sent him actual writing correspondence to that effect if you can give him specific here's the issue with the vas you have to give them specific mods specific dates you may not know the name of the person behind the desk that's doing the work that's supposed to be done but if you can give them team numbers or the team like if you're mod c mod d whatever and you can give them dates and times they can do the research their problem is a lot of the complaints either come verbally no one wants to put it in writing or they don't get specific enough information to do a full shakedown in a VA hospital is nearly impossible. Yeah. So you have to be able to pinpoint it. Now that doesn't mean it's going to get rectified. There is a challenge in the VA systems. I can speak from Oklahoma city. Sounds like Louisiana may have a similar issue on enforcing the job quality and performance of the employees at the lower levels. I'm not talking clinicians per se. I'm talking uh, personnel assistants and the general population there that man the offices and whatnot there there is a challenge in that and i do believe that can be improved but that comes down to the supervisors and the supervisors have to be held accountable that's from the higher level they're not if it, it trickles from the top down 
And if the supervisors are not being taken care of and they're not being held accountable in a constructive, non-judgmental way, then their personnel not, are not going to be held accountable in a non-judgmental, constructive way. And you're going to see all that trickle down. So employee treatment matters, particularly for any, I mean, for any business, think about it. So if you, if you have not sent it to him in writing, be an email or some form of letter and been specific, he can't fix it. I'm going to be honest with you. My, uh, my concern with that <laughs> is uh, twofold. My concern about that is I want to raise the issue, but I don't want to raise the issue in the sense that um, I'm seen as a troublemaker and lose my VA contract. So part of this is selfish on me because I, I want to keep my contract because that's what keeps food on the table. Well, that's all in how you present it. If you go in guns a blazing, then sure. You, you can put that stuff, that, that stuff may be on the chopping block. But if you go in non-judgmentally and how you present it and go, hey, I have noticed, I want to, I don't want, I want to save, I want to keep this employee from having a formal legal complaint filed. Because somebody can't actually petition, get a lawyer and petition if, if they find this violation of HIPAA, particularly the person whose records are in the wrong file. So if you're wanting to help the director in avoiding mass media, in avoiding mass lawsuits, then it's presented that way, unless he's extremely passive aggressive, and we all know in our world what that looks like, unless he's one of that type, then you should be okay. If he's passive aggressive, there could be an issue. You'll have to gauge it, I don't know him. So, but putting it out like that in a, in a way to be assistant, that's what social workers do. So if I saw, a front line. And I did it. I did it. Well, of course I was that intern. So when I, they, they expected it from me, I built the reputation up front. So if I saw somebody like that was, that had that issue where there was a problem, I would question, because a lot of times it means they're overwhelmed or something is not right in the office setting. So what's going on? What can we do to help? It leads back to self-care. Most of the time they weren't taking self-care time. So, so home was bleeding into work. It was bleeding into attention to detail. So that attention to detail was suffering. So HIPAA was being violated because of this. So you don't, I don't want to, my goal is not to get somebody fired. I mean, obviously they went through a process to get hired. It's, it's no easy task to get on at the VA. So what's going on that needs, that can be helped. And that's a complaint. And I teach all of my students. I, I am a field instructor for social work students. So I teach all of my students, a complaint is an unmet need, any complaint. So when you have that, you just presented me with a complaint. That complaint sounded like it was a need for security and information security at that and treatment for security, because now you may be treated off somebody else's record, which would be mistreatment, which could actually lead to the loss of a license of a medical professional. Yeah, we don't want that to happen. So how do we nix that in the bud, like you said? But you got to start by doing it the right way. And the VA is a militant bureaucracy. So the way you do it in the military, cross your T's, dot your I's, same way you do it in the VA. If it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. Absolutely. And, and that was part of my thing. I was hoping that when it happened to me personally, I was hoping that the ENT, the doctor that was reading it, um, cause I did explain to him, I said, this, this happens to be my own practice. And I was hoping that that would spark something. Not sure if maybe internally it did. I mean, obviously they're not going to call me and say, Hey, look, this is what we did. But I pointed it out to him that, Hey, 
that's not me in that file and you're holding that file. So hopefully uh, that ENT can do something good about that. So with, with your, with your experience, and this is, this is going to help a lot of the vets that are listening to this and, and, and military that are listening to this. Um, what's that starting point for them? I know people tell them all the time, Hey, go to the patient advocate, right? Uh, go to the patient advocate, go to the patient advocate supervisor. Um, how long in your, in your opinion, do you think that that, that process will take somebody goes to the patient advocate saying, Hey, I, I'm having trouble getting this appointment here. Um, is that patient advocate really, um, the best starting point or is there a different spot you would recommend? It depends on where you're at. So if you've been to one VA, you've been to one VA, you, you, all of them are a little bit different. And that's based on personnel and cultural competency where you're at, things like that. So it depends on your case. If you have a case that, like, let's go with the basic valid case that, yes, they've been trying to, they've called in, they've been told they're supposed to get an appointment, they're not getting callbacks, there's no letter in the mail, and they're not getting an appointment, they're not even getting hope of an appointment, and yet they're in the VA system. So I'm assuming everything's lined up. So the patient advocate is recommended. Well, you, you can do that, and a lot of people are going to tell you, go to the patient advocate, and you also have the DAV. They're also an advocate group for veterans. They do more political-based and governmental-based support and advocacy, but they are helpful in the VA world. You also have your chaplain corps. So you don't you can you can utilize the chaplain corps. Now they may route you back to a patient ad, advocate. So once you do see your patient advocate. I wish I could tell you, because it comes down to person we all know, each person has a different work ethic and each person handles work differently. So my best patient advocates were spot on, got the job done right then. They allowed um, two to three business days for action and did the follow-ups. They, they managed their caseload. There are some that struggle with caseload management and struggle with time management and suspense management when it comes to that. If you find that after two days, three days, you have not received a callback or anything, you'll have to do your own follow-up. I wish I could tell you it would be more hands-off, but it's not. The only one who can manage your care is you. If you get a, if you get a care team, score you. You get a care team. Not everybody gets the access to a care team. And a care team looks like family, friends, social worker, people that can encourage you and help you. So um, if they you call your patient advocate for a follow-up, uh, I hate to put this out there, but the squeaky wheel still works. Who gets the oil? So if you do daily follow-ups, Something's going to happen. And if you're logging those daily follow-ups, you log it, you put down who you spoke with and the response. If you are not getting care within that week and you've gotten nothing, you can go straight up to the director. There's an open door policy nationwide. And you can send an email, go visit. I would hesitate the in-person part with COVID-19 pandemic still in full swing, but you could call, send an email, send a letter. And be be proactive when you do it and constructive in your criticism. They do get a lot of, of upset veterans who are not constructive in their feedback and criticism. That's going to turn them off right away. I mean, think about it. Someone comes up to you and starts calling you names that you don't even know and telling you you've got something wrong. 
you're going to turn them off immediately. It's a defense mechanism. If they come up and introduce themselves and say, I noticed this, you know, are you okay with me providing you feedback for improvement? You're more apt to go, okay, sure. And you're less likely to be defensive, Uh, right? Yeah, no, that that works. That works. I think with COVID-19, it's, 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 it's a lot different because especially the VA down here, especially you have to, uh, you have to have an appointment before they even let you pass the doors. So, um, walking in wouldn't, wouldn't work there. So with, um, with, with you and your, and your work, what are some of the uh, ways that you're treating vets with, uh, in, in, in military, since you're still uh, national guard, uh, what is, what are some strategies you're using to, to treat them for, uh, anxiety? I mean, one of the things that I do is I, I use EMDR and, uh, I love EMDR. It's, it's, it's transformational and it's, it's amazing. I had this lady a couple of weeks ago that came in and, and we've been working together for a while and we, we did some work and, and we did some processing and she told me, she says, I've been holding on to this for 20 years and, and two processing sessions. And I don't feel that, that, that same feeling that I had before. And she said, it's right here. It's no longer, it's no longer in my chest. And it's like, that's when it clicked because I'm, I'm new to EMDR. I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm one consultation away from a, being complete with phase two. And so, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to start the certification process next. So what are you using for, for vets? And, and, and if you want, you know, explain, explain some of that technique that you would use that you would recommend to someone listening that may be dealing with PTSD or anxiety or, or stress or depression. We'll use several things in the national guard. Unlike active duty, I don't have a chance to see my clientele successively over an eight to 12 week period. So, and in my contract with the National Guard, we are relegated to three visits before we have to transfer care to a continual care. So I use a lot of solution-focused brief therapy. Believe it or not, I use it in the field too. So I use within the solution-focused brief therapy, I, I use a lot of the CBT, cognitive behavior. Um, grounding. I, I'm a DBT nut. I am DBT skills certified. So a DBT includes the, the cognitive behavior, includes the radical acceptance, includes the ACT, all of it kind of rolled in one. I do a lot of the skills portion of DBT along with solution-focused brief therapy. I'm also a tapping. Oh, I'm not a fully tapping therapist, but I do tapping. And so I was working on that. It dropped off last year and I got to pick it back up, but tapping works. now. EMDR is brilliant and I've known, I've seen it work and it, you don't even have to like your therapist for it to work. So that is the one thing about EMDR. You cannot stay, you can completely hate your therapist, but it'll still work. So that's one of the good things about it. Um, and it's, it's, it takes time, but like your, your patients have told you, your clients have told you, oh my goodness, I don't have all the stress build up in my chest that I had before tapping does something similar. It's not near what EMDR is. So EMDR is more for like long-term chronic crisis and severe situational stress. And then tapping, you can do tapping your whole life, but tapping will help you in a moment. And then every time you need it, it'll help relieve stress too, particularly while you're looking for the treatment set that works best for you to help address the original cause of the symptoms. So I do a lot with, the, 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 um, I do a lot with reality testing. 
on the spot, a lot with breathing. And this, again, the solution-focused brief therapy, tapping some, and DBT skills a lot. Hmm. And what do you what do you say to the, to the people that come see you um, that may be on the fence about going into that more long-term therapy or that maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that once their crisis of the day is, is, is kind of over, they go back to repeating those same patterns. Like what, what's some encouragement that you give them to say, Hey, um, therapy is not, is not, it's not going to be, it's not bad. It's, it's, it's not a punishment. Right. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons I get so much business is because of the fact that I am a vet and I, it's an instant relatability there with other vets and other family members that, that have dealt with uh, veterans issues. Um, so what are some things you would tell the audience that, um, benefits of therapy, if they were an offense? I basically use a lot of motivational interviewing tools when it comes to that. So I have cases like that all the time. A lot of what I do is supporting that particular veteran or service member in their efforts to manage their symptom set as long as they did. Obviously, they were able to manage it for that period of time or they'd have been with you sooner. So definitely giving the kudos, it's a strengths-based approach and that is most effective. So giving them the kudos on, hey, you've managed this far. So, and you feel like you could still manage, but you're here to see me. So are you managing or do you, would you like some assistance with that? And I'll, if I know the history, we're going to point out the history, but we're doing it in a non-judgmental way. Let's look at this. You know, you, you got a history here, you'll engage and then you disengage, you engage, then you disengage. So when you engage, what happens? Well, well, I like it. Everything goes well, blah. Okay. So it's going well and you disengage. Okay, what happens when you disengage? Oh, well, my wife gets on me or my husband gets on me, my kids get on me, and I have trouble at work, you know, that kind of thing. All right. And then you re-engage what happens. And we go back through it. It's and I know the outcome. I know what should happen. It's a matter of getting that person to come to that point in their minds. So it's the diplomacy, the art of giving someone else your opinion. So it's It's, you know, well, let's look at that. So what is your ideal? The magic question. What would you like in life? Ideally, what would you like to see it as? Well, I'd like to see this. Are you able to do that on your own? I mean, and I usually throw in, you're here to see me for a reason. (laughs) Are you, can you do this on your own? And a lot of it's like, well, no, that's why I'm here. Well, let's be logical about it. You're here. Okay, so what, how can I help? What do you think would be helpful? Well, I need help with blah. Okay, so what do you think, you know, what have you tried before? What do you, what have you not tried yet you think would be helpful? And sometimes, most of the time I'll get a blah, I don't know, that's why I'm here. Okay, so let's look at what, what my toolbox has. Let's pull some of these tools out and see if they'll work. And most of the time they do. And I use, like I said, it, have you ever heard of Albert Ellis? You know, like in your training and all yes. Okay, I'm very yes, much Albert definitely. Ellis. The only difference is I'm female and I come across more funny than Albert Ellis did. So my clients, instead of hating me, usually find me entertaining. <laughs> so, but I'm very, I am very blunt and I'm very logical and very pointed. So let's just put it out there. I mean, there's, there may, if there's shame in it, we're going to acknowledge it and, and look at it and go, you're not a bad person. And that's what shame tells you. I have met people where shame was warranted and it's been one or two in my entire 20 year career here. So the majority of people 
where they're self-shaming, it's not needed, but they don't know that they don't need that. They don't know what it is or what to do with it. And so we can look at all of that, but we, we kind of take a big synopsis picture, the whole environment, what's going on, what's happened, what, what would you like to happen? And what would, what keeps you from staying engaged? And we also have to look at progress, not perfection. So if you were engaged for, for two months before in therapy and it worked, but then you dropped off, the next time you re-engaged in therapy, you were engaged in therapy for five months before it dropped off. That's improvement. This is a long deal. So you may have to work up a month at a time to get to chronic, to consistent therapy treatment. And my challenge and that's okay. And that's okay. Yes, but but do people think that's okay? Society tells you no, you need to fix yourself right now and be good for the rest of your life. So yes. having to bring that concept forward and going, I see improvement here. Look at this. Let's look at this. Because people don't often go back and take a look behind them, particularly when they're in situations like that, to see where they've succeeded. All they do is look at their failures. So let's look at your successes. And then how do you want to move forward with that? It, the amount of relief and anxiety reduction just in looking at your successes is amazing and very significant for the process. So then moving forward with, well, how long would you like to go? We may have to baby step this goal. You want to try six months this time? Let's see if we can do that. You know, if that looks, if that sounds like it's realistic, we do a smart goal, we make it all smart. So if that seems realistic and attainable, let's shoot for it. What happens if you don't make it though? What do we do then? You know, do you shut down and, and self-isolate again? Or do you reach out and go, hey, it didn't work. Let's look at it. It's a science. Life is trial and error. Let's look at the science experiment. What kept it from working? You know, it could be a significant death in the family. Okay, that's completely relevant <laughs> so, and, le- and legitimate. So, well, okay, let's, let's pick her back up. Then. So I do a lot of that, a lot of motivational interviewing, bring in, you're here. As I've been pulled in a lot with privates in the with the command and their NCO staff, and the private looks at me and goes, "Oh, I'm great. Okay, you're so great that we had to pull in a captain, a behavioral health officer that you don't know, in front of your leadership and your first sergeant command, and you're okay." I challenge that statement. <laughs> so there's a lot of a lot of logic in it. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's a stigma in itself. And I, and, and I didn't, the military, I saw it in a lot, but I also saw it in the, the, the mental health setting. So when I used to work in community mental health, um, before I started the practice and, and before I was doing some, some grant work stuff, um, I, I was in community mental health. And I think it's similar to the, to the military in that aspect, whereas the person that was, that was, responsible for my supervision was also responsible for my uh, evaluations. And so if I told that person, Hey, I'm struggling with this technique, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that. That was also considered in my work evaluations. And so I think the same thing is true with, with soldiers, whereas if they go tell their commanding officer, they tell their NCO that they're struggling mentally or mental health wise, that might impact their evaluations for their NCOERs or for their, or for their evals or something like that. And so that's something that I think that the behavioral, behavioral health officers like yourself can keep in mind 
to help with the, tell the commanders, look, this should be separate from his work performance because this is like something's going on and we, we, this, whatever's going on is fixable as opposed to he's not intentionally trying to, or she's not intentionally trying to not do the work. Something's really legitimately happening. Yes, I deal with that all the time. And I do EAP for our national guard as well. So we do deal with that. And that's part of the training and there will always be a bias. There will always be a stigma. So I wish I could say we could abolish it all, but we're not, that's unrealistic when it comes to human nature period, much less in a bureaucracy. So what I do is I do meet a lot and this discussion, I don't have like meetings, briefings and stuff. I do those when requested, but it's a Walmart discussion. We're talking one day, you know, I've had a soldier that, you know, is doing this. I said, have they always been a good troop? Well, yes, they've always been a good troop. Okay. Well, I tell you what, let's take a look at what's going on with this trip. What's, what's keeping them from, from having, you know, keeping them from being as good as they could be. And we look at that. And once they see the issue, you'd be surprised how many of them go, Oh my gosh, I did not realize. Yeah. Home effects work. If they're overwhelmed, then you're going to see it in the workplace. So how could let's help them. So I'll meet with the person. We'll figure out the issue. Um, they'll, they'll participate in, in the best ways they can. And a lot of times I get back the, oh my gosh, they're brilliant. Cause we've had a soldier like that before that was completely hated by her section because of something that had happened in the family and it was chronic. She didn't talk to anybody. She didn't trust anybody. She didn't know anybody. So her work performance, it, it suffered. So they went a couple of months trying to get with her on this. And once we, I got together with her, then it turned out to be great. We figured out what the issue was. She didn't even realize what it was. So we figured out what the issue was. I gave her some resources and some support. And she moved forward. The next time they were all together, she was a different person to the point they were concerned. They were concerned that she was suicidal (laughs) and that she had made her plan because she had that much of a turnaround. And we're trained that sometimes, you know, suicide can look like that when they've made their plan and everything. So um, they, the whole section met with me and I was like, oh, okay, I understand you guys' concern and that's wonderful. I'm glad you caught that. Let's look at this. Wait for it overnight. Let's see what happens. And she continued to not only be a great soldier and continues to still be a great soldier, she was even coined by but the whole set. You know, she was given kudos by the adjutant general for our state and everything else in the section. So she, her work performance has just improved dramatically all because we figured out what the issue was and she didn't even know. She just knew she was in pain as far as, you know, emotional pain that was causing physical pain. And she didn't know what to do with it, where it was coming from. Um, and she just had no idea and it just manifested in this ball. And once we figured it out and she went forward and I gave her the support, you had to be culturally competent too, because it involved a lot of cultural competence. Um, and moving forward with that, boom, the release, we kind of like EMDR, the release was there. She was able to move forward and work. And the units is like, I don't know what you did, but it's great. And I've done that with several, several soldiers. So, and I deal with my veterans too when I have them. We sometimes just identifying it makes significant improvements. Absolutely. Identifying it, pointing it out. And, and I think something before we wrap up this, something that you touched on um, is very important that I, that I talk to people a lot about. And it's, it's uh, defining your own success, right? So society has this idea of what the success looks like. But if we define our own success, 
And, and, and for example, for, for exercise, if success is going outside one day and walking around the block one time, and that's more than you did yesterday, and that's successful for you, then great. For somebody else, maybe running five miles is, is the first step for them. But for me, maybe it's just getting on the bike and, and riding, riding a half mile, whatever it is. So defining your own success. And that's, that's kind of where I got my, uh, my tagline at for my business is uh, redefine yourself, right? And, and what I mean by that is, is that don't let anyone else define you. So you define yourself and, and if you fail, you fail. I mean, I said this many times on here, my, my business started because of failure. Um, I, I opened private practice because I didn't get a promotion in, in the nonprofit world when, when I went for a promotion. Um, and, and I realized that that was the end of my road for that particular venture of that nonprofit. Um, so don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to define your own success and don't be afraid to, um, to just go to the beat of your own drum. Right. And here's where I'm going to get Albert Ellis on you. So you're talking about the world's expectation or the world's, um, advertisement of what success looks like. I challenge that. I don't think it's the world putting it out there. I think it's the person's reception of what they think that looks like. We've seen that in Facebook and other social media. So people put out what people put out. The media is going to put out whatever they're going to put out to get it. It's all dollar driven, you know? So whatever is going to keep the ratings and, and keep the money coming in. So they still have a business, but as far as the person goes, I've had people come to me with, well, society expects this. I challenge that. Let's look at that. Decide you society really expect that. Or is that your perception of what you think society expects? Because if you're poor, you have a different perception and expectation than somebody who's in lower middle class versus middle class versus the upper classes. So your expectation perception is completely different. I've been in all levels of those classes. I've been from the top all the way down. I've seen the perceptions in action. I've experienced the perceptions in action. And my perception as a person who was on the, the you know, borderline of poverty versus the perception of someone who is in a family that had multi-million dollars, they were different animals. And society's expectation was a little bit different but similar as a whole, but it was my expectation of what I thought was being expected of me. And I'm a people pleaser. So I'm, I'm hypersensitive to that. So my, it was my expectation of what I thought society expected of me. That was the issue, not society putting anything on me. So it comes down to looking in the mirror and most people don't want to look in a mirror. They want to shatter it. So look, look in the mirror. It's okay to be you, no matter what you look like, no matter what you're doing. You people are beautiful the way they are, even if they don't think they are. And that's a lot of what I try to bring forward is you are you. What is your expectation? So when it comes down to it, I I don't take society as an excuse. I take that as just information to make that decision based on your perception. And perception becomes reality. Bingo. Yeah. And and that's 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 a good, that's a good segue point is perception is reality. And, and so what's your reality and, um, how do you, how do you continue to be successful? So what is, what is something that you're going to do in this next year that's going to continue to help you grow as not only a clinician, but as, as, as just a, a person? 
Great question. I am also in transition. So as far as career goes and things like that, that's such a wide word. Um, so I will be retiring from the military this year. In that transition, I have to look at my role at home. I'm looking at, you know, as a mom, as a, as a wife, as a, a daughter, as a sister, as a friend in the community. I would my goal is to do more in my community. I already volunteer with my local church and local food pantry, but I want to either improve upon that or build another way to assist in my community because that's kind of what I do. Not everybody's designed to volunteer and assist. Also, I'm looking at how to kind of reinvent myself, not necessarily reinvent, but take what I have and create a new piece of art from it. So I just finished becoming a Real Colors certified workshop presenter. So I'm starting to work the Real Colors. I love it because it's colors and it's fun and it's easy. And I'm not having to do crisis management with it. <laughs> so so I'd, like to, I'd like to transition out of crisis management. I'm really good at it. I understand. I would consult any day with someone who needs it. But I would like to transition from kind of crisis management and go into more of an educational set uh, training, communication is my love, effective communication. So I'm actually a certified court mediator, but I'm going to get away from that. Not been a lot of business. And my focus, like I said, is training and communication. I love to provide insight and team building through that. So that's what I'm looking for in 2021. And I started that process in 2020. And it, it was COVID independent. So COVID-19 did not affect it one way or the other. So I just have to continue that process in this particular year amidst all of this crazy pandemic and political unrest. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're looking forward to as well. We're, we're the podcast. Uh, so 2021 is kind of season two for us and we're doing more of these interviews and we're going to be getting people in here talking about their experiences. And, and so I really appreciate you, you talking with me today. You, you're a fellow unicorn. If you've, uh, if you've heard any of the podcasts that I've done, uh, a unicorn is a, a therapist who is also a veteran um, whereas there's, there's many of us that are out there, but not everyone sees us all the time. So that's why I say we're unicorns. Cause you know, maybe, maybe unicorns are really out there, but we just don't see them. And that's what people think about therapists that are veterans that, you know, we know they're out there somewhere. They might be at the VA, but in private practice, they're not as many, but I'm a unicorn, you're a unicorn. And, um, I really appreciate you being here and, 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 and any last words that you want to say, anything you want to plug? I usually plug a veteran's business at the end of this, uh, at the end of the podcast. So I have my business, Freedom Within LLC, and you can reach me at, uh, on Facebook at Freedom Within Therapy. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at vet underscore therapist. And if you want to support the North Shore Braves again, North Shore Braves uh, on Facebook and on Twitter, it's NS Braves 20 uh, to support us. and. Any last words that you want to share with the audience? I love oh, baseball, so I'll totally be supporting that. Um, right now, my my company is Mathis Kerr Mediation, and you can Google it or search it on Facebook and find the page. I don't do much with my page. I promise to do more. I'm rethinking the name on that because of the real colors direction I'm taking. So right now, it's Mathis Kerr Mediation. And if you... 
if you uh, Google mediators on mediate.com for Oklahoma City, you'll find me. I pop up near the top. So, um, like I said, though, I, I'm more interested in leaning towards the real colors and training and communication. I love to train on self-care. I love to train on effective communication, what that looks like, how it's implemented. And that's another, another reason I like real colors. It's instantly implementable. And I like to do that for my 501c entities, my nonprofits, which is where I'm at right now. I've got a couple of nonprofits that have brought me on to do that. And um, you want to give them a plug? Give who a plug? The nonprofits. Oh, well, OKC Metro Alliance with their public inebriative alternative. Yes, I'll plug them all day long. They're also the umbrella for Men's First Step and Women's First Step in Oklahoma City, which is a free recovery program for those that are coming through substance use and addiction recovery. The PIA, as we call it, Public Initiative Alternative, is an alternative to going to the drug tank in, in, in the jail. So instead of going to the drunk tank, you can go to the PIA and you'll get uh, you'll get you know, some food, you'll get um, a bed for the night, um, and then you can get put, you know, returned to home if you need to. But they're also going to let you know that men's and women's first step exists and what it does. It gives you a chance to recover your life. So instead of just living a life of recovery, you can recover your life. And that's that's more of a, that, that that particular program by you is 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 local, but first step is I think that's a nationwide yes. thing too, right? Yeah. Okay. So if you're listening and you're having issues with with alcohol or drugs and you need you need some assistance there, um, Google your local first step program and OKC. Go ahead and go um, to the one that was mentioned a few minutes ago, and. Um, we're going to have to have you back on one day to talk about the real colors and go into detail about that. And, and maybe, maybe give, uh, give the audience something to, to hear about that. And I, I would like to learn more about that. I've heard about it, but I don't know too, too much about it. So that'd be something that we can do in a later date. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and, and you being here and being a part of the show and um, to the audience, y'all, y'all have a good day now. Yeah.